Hi there, Emily Andrews here, just letting you know that this episode of Bibliophiles is another installment in our Lit Period series, where we take you through a whirlwind tour of Western literature's literary periods. And as always, we've already taken notes for you so that you can just sit back and enjoy the show. To download them, just visit our website at www.centerforlit.com slash litperiod5. That's www.centerforlit.com slash L-I-T-P-E-R-I-O-D, the number five. We've also linked to them in the show notes for this episode. So without further ado, I'll let you get on to our discussion of American realism. Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again, along with the rest of the Center for Lit crew, including my lovely wife, Missy. Hello. My daughter, Megan. Hi. My son, Ian. Hey. And his lovely wife, Emily. Hi. Good to be with you all once again for another edition of Bibliophiles. This time, an episode of Lit Period, our whirlwind tour of the literary periods of Western literature from the 6th century to the 21st. And today, the topic is American realism. American realism. And I don't even want to give anything away. I just want to start in by asking you, Missy, what in the world do we mean by American realism in literature. Well, when we talk about realism, we're really talking about a style, um, like an artistic style. So it, it crossed um, all the different forms of art. It affected uh, music and the visual arts as well as literature. And the realists were really interested in depicting um, everyday, ordinary life. So it was a, a basically a movement away from classical subject matter, which we've talked about in previous broadcasts, right? Remember the classical um, subject matter was extraordinary, the supernatural demigods and gods duking it out at a national level with great consequence. Well, these literary realists wanted to talk about um, the individual, the commonplace, the mundane, the ordinary. When are they doing this? What, where does this come in the history of literary periods? This is coming right after the Romantic movement. It's kind of overlapping the Romantic movement and can be seen as kind of a reaction to Romanticism. So and you mean 19th century? Yes, 19th century. Okay. And remember, the Romantics already had taken that step away from the classical subject matter to the more ordinary subject matter. So the Romantics were very interested in individuals as well, but they were interested in idealizing the individual experience. And the realists wanted to move away from this idealization to talk about the gritty elements of real life existence. Okay. So in England, this movement took the form of the Victorians, like think Dickens, okay? In the United States, it countered the sweeping landscapes of the Hudson River School, like John Constable and J.M.W. Turner, right? Whose literary counterpart was James Fenimore Cooper, you know him? Uh, the Last of the Mohicans, uh -huh. the Deerslayer. Okay, it, it basically countered those guys with the gritty work of the Ashcan School of Art. So like George Bellows, the guy who painted boxing matches 
and uh, city street scenes and things like that. If that was the visual realist, think um, literary counterpart, Mark Twain, Stephen Crane, Jack London, uh, Henry James. So in American literature, then, James Fenimore Cooper is maybe the most um, memorable romantic. And he's, yes. he writes in the very early 19th century. And yes. the, the literary realist that we're talking about today would be personified by Mark Twain and Stephen Crane writing in the late 19th century. Yes, exactly. Okay. So American literature as a separate thing from European literature took a while to, to take root and establish itself. And it really began to take on the personality of the frontier with the romantics, with James Fenimore Cooper and... Thoreau, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Americans began to contribute a very unique voice to the literary society, right? They began to compete with the Europeans on a very unique um, kind of, I want to say personal level, if we can call the national identity of America personal, okay. right? Um, but in this particular period, everything was changing. So the style that Hawthorne and that James Fenimore Cooper uh, brought to bear on the American identity, literary identity, um, morphed and changed as the realists began to say, now, wait a minute, we're going to move away from these vast landscapes, this faraway look that kind of idealized everything and made everything misty, right? And we're going to get down and dirty and we're going to look at what the world is really like for the average, ordinary individual man in society. There's this idea in uh, in traditional American high school lit classes of the noble savage, mm -hmm. the um, American Indian who is portrayed as above the fray of civilization and noble in his lack of civilization. And that image was created and popularized by James Fenimore Cooper in his mm -hmm. uh, Leatherstocking Tales. And that idea, it sounds to me like, is one of the things that the literary realists kind of reacted against in their effort to portray everybody as they actually were. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Actually, what you get is an emphasis on um, detail, a oh, real yes. strong emphasis on detail. They want to talk about um, the real, the real stuff of humanity. So there's an emphasis on place. You get a lot of regional fiction, um, an emphasis on dialect. Um, they wanted to write in the vernacular. So you get Mark Twain uh, introducing Southern dialect mm -hmm. and things like that. One of the reasons that passages in Huckleberry Finn are difficult mm -hmm. to understand because he's yep. paying attention to how people actually spoke in the Missouri Valley of right. the 1840s or whatever. A real strong emphasis on local color, right? The things that are peculiar to a region and that mark that region as different from any other region, even in the United States. We've mentioned Mark Twain a couple of times. He's obviously the most uh, famous American realist, indeed, probably the most famous American writer, certainly the apostle of this particular school. Megan, are there other names that we should know when we think of American realism? Yeah, mom already mentioned one that, that I think of. I think of uh, Henry James. He's famous for his work, Portrait of a Lady. And there's this awesome quote I found about him that kind of summarizes everything that I know about the realism as a movement. Um, Edmund Wilson is the guy who said this. And he says of Henry James, he wasn't like Dickens and a Hardy, a writer of melodrama, either humorous or pessimistic, nor a secretary of society like Balzac, nor a prophet like Tolstoy. He was occupied simply with the presentation of conflict of moral character, which didn't concern themselves with softening or averting. He didn't indict society for these situations. Instead, he regarded them as universal and inevitable. 
He didn't even blame God for allowing them. He simply accepted them as conditions of life. Uh, and that's the way that the realists all are, I think. They are examining the world around them in all of its ugliness, mm -hmm. and their only job is to present it to you in all of its grittiness and say, there, look at that. So yeah. they're reporting. Very right. much like reporting. In fact, a, a large majority of them began their career as journalists. Uh -huh. So there's a real attention to the journalistic style that creeps in around the edges. Yeah, you some see that even, in Crane, too. Yeah, absolutely. Some of, um, some of these... Some of these authors um, called their fiction kind of an experimentation. So you get the rise of the scientific novel. And what I mean by that is not that the subject matter of the novel is science, but that the novel itself becomes a kind of an experiment in which characters are set up and um, we, we watch to see the results, you know? Um, so, for example, Stephen Crane's Red Badge of Courage, um, very scientific in its analysis. We're not really told what to think about what we see, mm -hmm. but there's like a, a report of data, mm -hmm. right? About the behavior of the individual when he's in certain circumstances. So very scientific in its approach. Which was really different from James <clears throat> Fenmore Cooper, who mm -hmm. was overly melodramatic and his emphasis was always on the, the sensitivity of his characters, right? right. It was such a contrast. Yeah, I in fact, I would say that realists were really reacting against this kind of idealized, artificial writing. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's a clear delineation then in style um, between the romantics that come in the first half of the 19th century and the realists that take over kind of in the second half. Yeah. Very easy to tell the difference, even if you didn't know who it was written by. Oh, yes. Between a realist novel and a romantic novel. Yeah. Megan mentioned Henry James, and he called this kind of writing documentary realism, mm -hmm. documentary realism, because really he's trying to document the specific conditions of people in a particular place and time. I think of a couple of scenes from the, the most famous realist novel of all time, uh, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, where you think, I wonder why Huck has, is pausing right now to describe in such detail this little backwater town mm -hmm. with all of the people in it. I'm not sure exactly what that contributes to the novel. Although if you take a step back, you can see Twain weaving it all in to make his sure, point. Sure. But there, are, you can it, with this context, we can see that novel as a pure example of realism. The interest in reflecting the dialect as it actually existed and the mm -hmm. appearance of those little towns and the relationships between the people. He's providing a, a history, as it were, of that region in that particular time. Yeah, and when you start to think about um, the time period of, of realism, the time period in which this particular form really took off, there's a lot going on in America in this particular period. And we've got um, westward, migration, westward migration going on and lots of immigration um, changing the scene in America from this rural landscape into kind of peopled plains and industrialized cities. Um, so think industrialization, urbanization, and a push that's transcontinental, kind of changing the face of America. And at the same time, you've got Darwin publishing his On the Origin of Species, um, 1859, mm -hmm. and that makes a gigantic splash everywhere. It's like this resounding gunshot that echoes over the plains and changes everything in terms of how people think about themselves and the world and even, even the social constructs. So this has a really strong influence on this particular type of literature as well. 
basically because materialism is the philosophical result of Darwin's ideas. And when so reality is their... what you can see and touch and taste and exactly, hear. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. The, the concept of what is real changes when Darwin introduces his thesis um, to society. And it's not just, you got to understand, Darwin's thesis didn't just affect the scientific community or the religious community. It affected all communities. Art in particular, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we tend to think from our place here um, in the 21st century that secular humanists were the ones who were really embracing this idea. But you get um, like Marx and Lenin who fastened onto Darwin's ideas and modified them to explain their own understanding of an economically evolving society with classes competing like animals for survival. And in the concrete jungles of America, as Upton Sinclair would call the cities in this particular time later, much later, he comes a little bit later. In, Not a lot later. In, well, 25 years, years. Something like that, right? Well, anyway, in those concrete jungles, um, we get these cities that are rife with poverty and inhumanity. And these seem to be some, in some way proof of this brutal social evolutionary process yeah. to so many of these authors who are from the city working as journalists. And so what's going on in the inner city becomes kind of a subject matter that they're playing with in this particular time period. The cities were um, kind of a locus of action in this time period. Historically speaking, um, Norton's anthology says that by the end of World War I, half of the American population was concentrated in a dozen or so cities. Yeah, so there's a great move between when, let's say, the Civil War ends in 1865 mm -hmm. and World War I in the 19-teens, a great move of American people towards cities and the displacement that that causes, right. and uh, combined with the rise of Darwin's theories and the materialism that well, undergirds the, the intellectual life of the country... Um, creates uh, the conditions for realism in literature. Absolutely. I mean, that that civil war that you're talking about took such a great toll on um, American lives. I mean, it was unprecedented, really. Uh, just the, the depopulation of America that occurred as a result of that war. So you've got people dealing with it. There wasn't a family in the Americas that wasn't affected by the American Civil War, right? And then in addition to that, we've, get the, we've got this, um, this new idea that um, takes away the necessity of God in explaining origins. Mm -hmm. And then you've got cities, this move towards um, industrialization and urbanization. And you've got these cities that weren't planned. You got to understand that the city, unlike today's cities, had no urban planners. They weren't prepared to absorb the kind of the kind of migration, the, the, the oversaturation and overpopulation that they were experiencing at this time. They didn't have any kind of sanitation, um, poor water supply. Right, right, right. That really, it, it caused so much um, poverty and disease. And the cities were not a very nice place in this particular time. Now, how period. does this relate to realism in literature, real quick? Because I want to get back to our literary conversation well, as soon as we can. This is because these authors were, in large part, living in the cities. And these are the things that they were reporting on. So you get. Um, for example, Maggie Girl of the Streets, right? Stephen Crane's Maggie Girl of the Streets writing about a prostitute trying yeah. to make ends meet living in the city. Um, you get The Open Boat, another Stephen Crane book. You get um, 
oh, Jack London Jack stories. Jack London yeah. stories, you know? Yeah, Jack London. You mentioned Upton Sinclair. Well, right. Jack London, I don't think about him so much as um, writing about the city because he's writing. You know, though, I you think know, it's from still the wise because it's that's the context in which all these authors are living. And those are the people that they're communicating with. Yes. Those are their audience. Yes. And should... so those themes are are relevant to the people they're talking to. I want to jump back from context for just a minute and from intellectual history and ask a a literary question or two. And maybe Ian and Emily, you guys can chip in on this. When you, um, when you read novels from the 19th century, as we are suggesting here, there's obviously a great difference in tone and style and subject matter between say a romantic novel, the leather stocking tales, the scarlet letter and a realist novel, Huckleberry Finn, the red badge of courage. Um, What's what's the difference in in effect that it has on the reader? I mean, do you guys like one or the other style slash subject matter better? <laughs> That's a fun question. I mean, uh, well, let me be diplomatic and say there's reasons to like them both. Okay, and I've 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 read a lot of both of them, and and there are some that I enjoy. Um, but I think the overall effect of the of the realist trend is to write a sort of a bleak story. And I guess, I mean, Twain is, Twain straddles uh, the atmospheres, if you will. Um, his stories are at once lighthearted and very serious. And, and there's, a, there's an undercurrent of discouragement and depression about, about human nature, perhaps, in a Mark Twain story. But some of his contemporaries were downright dark. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's fun to, it's fun to teach um, some of the short stories that we teach from that era. It's fun to teach London, for example, because man, having to unpack a novel like that, thematically speaking, there, it's really difficult to find something positive to come away from the story with. So anyway, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it's definitely in the direction of it. Emily, what would you add to that in terms of a preference just in, in style and subject matter between say romantic American novels and realist ones? I guess I tend to lean more towards realist just because I prefer when people tell the truth about things. And I think there's a lot about the romantics where they were kind of glossing over some true things. Um, And so even though the realists can be extremely challenging and although we may not agree with their premises, I think they are much more fun to discuss and challenge students with as a teacher and just myself with as a person. That's good. That's what I meant. That's what I was hoping for. What I like to see is Ian and Emily disagreeing because I was counting on the fact that Ian would say, I'd much rather read (laughs) romantics because the realists are so dark and Emily following up saying, yeah, but the realists are telling the truth. I wanted to agree (laughs) with you um, about the direct (laughs) style of the realists. I mean, I appreciate the, the, the spareness of language, you know, that when you read the romantics, the sentences, the prose sentences just go on and on, you know, they're very flowery (laughs) and the realists are very direct because of their reporter journalistic style. But what I really wanted to to comment on is you said they, they tell the truth Mm -hmm. and that, I think that that needs some explanation because they tell the truth as they know it. Mm-hmm. They report on the details that are before their senses, but the truth itself, um, from their perspective, becomes something that's only sensory. Yeah, I guess I wasn't very clear there. What I don't mean by truth is that is that I agree with their premises, like right. I said before, but that rather they're they're seeing the full scope of human experience and they're reporting the facts maybe more um 
directly that was a good word uh than their romantic counterparts well they're mm-hmm. cer- they're certainly um reaching out and tearing the rose-colored glasses off of everyone else from their well, own right, perspective they're, they're addressing the pain and suffering in a way that was kind of glossed over in more mm-hmm. idealized stories and you know yeah. i think it's so interesting the way they want to deal with that pain and suffering because um, the vast majority of literary realists were kind of coming along with Darwin and assuming, assuming with him this kind of materialism, really. And the result is very dark, very depressing, as Ian said, because it reduces man to kind of a machine. Right. You know, he's just a bundle of nerves and cells. There's no human soul. There's just matter. And so in a world that is... Um, rife with difficulty as the world we've described this particular period that they were reporting on as being, um, and with no God to interpret the world with, Mm -hmm. their interpretive framework, the way that they choose to deal with this kind of thing um, is with empathy. Over and over again, you get, um, okay, in a world like this, the saddest thing about man is that of all the creatures, all these... these, material creatures, he alone is aware of his predicament. So Mm -hmm. he's very pitiable. What are we going to do about it? Well, you know, Darwin has kind of pushed God out of the picture. And it seems like general society, not everyone, but many in society, uh, we're good with that. And so now what were they going to fall back on? Well, we're going to have to band together collectively in our humanity and care for one another, Mm. have empathy for one another. Yeah. So you get Stephen Crane suggesting things like that. And um, I think I think even Twain is looking for that and not finding it. That's kind of the source of much of his cynicism, I think. I think so. I think you're right. And that I, I think bringing up cynicism is a good point, too, that that might realists, authors in, in America in the late 19th century might have that in common, mm-hmm. a cynicism perhaps brought on by the experience of the Civil War and the displacements brought about by the urbanization and the other trends you talked about. I think their their interest in empathy is probably also a common element. They didn't tend to have empathy towards the literary artists that had gone before, however. <laughs> you couldn't their, say that. No, they did not. Their, their attitude toward romanticism in particular <laughs> was famous. And actually, we have a great example of that attitude uh, from the pen of the great Mark Twain, who once uh, in the 1890s... And by the way, Mark Twain wrote Huckleberry Finn in 1885... And sort of uh, the the pinnacle of early realism, anyway. Um, Stephen Crane wrote between that period and the turn of the 20th century, and Jack London and Upton Sinclair wrote right around the turn of the 20th century and into the 1910s. So we're talking about the period between the Civil War and World War One, primarily. Second half. Yeah. So, but but I wanted to call attention to this essay because any of you listeners who are teachers and want to approach literary realism from kind of a um, a teacher perspective would do well to read Mark Twain's 1890 or so essay, James Fenimore Cooper's literary offenses <laughs> in which he blasts the long dead romantic author as a way to mark out the territory that literary realism is trying to occupy and define sort of the project. It is a fantastic essay. It's hilarious, as you would expect Twain's essays to be. And I want to read an excerpt of it, or an excerpt from it, to give you an idea, not only of uh, just as a, as a suggestion that you make Mark Twain part of your literary canon, but also to give an idea of, of the difference between realism and romanticism. So let me just take a few minutes and read an excerpt. Twain says this, Cooper's art has some defects. 
In one place in The Deerslayer, Cooper's novel, and in the restricted space of two-thirds of a page, Cooper has scored 114 offenses against literary art out of a possible 115. (laughs) It breaks the record. (laughs) He He goes on to say, There are 19 rules governing literary art in the domain of romantic fiction. Some say 22. In Deerslayer, Cooper violated 18 of them. <laughs> These 18 require, and then he lists the 18 rules. They're wonderful, by the way. I want to read you two of them and, and what follows. Rule number eight requires that crass stupidities shall not be played upon the reader as, quote, the craft of the woodsman, the delicate art of the forest, by either the <laughs> author or the people in the tale. But this rule is persistently violated in the Deerslayer. <laughs> Rule number nine requires that the personages of a tale shall confine themselves to possibilities and let miracles alone. Or, (laughs) if they venture a miracle, the author must so plausibly set it forth as to make it look possible and reasonable. But these rules are not respected in the Deerslayer. (laughs) And he goes on to illustrate with a recollection of a scene or two from the Deerslayer that is worth reading. He says this, I am sorry there is not room to put in a few dozen instances of the delicate art of the forest as practiced by Natty Bumpo, the protagonist of the Deerslayer, and some of the other Cooperian experts. Perhaps we may venture two or three samples. Cooper was a sailor, a naval officer, yet he gravely tells us how a vessel driving towards a lee shore in a gale is steered for a particular spot by her skipper, because he knows of an undertow there which will hold her back against the gale and save her. For just pure woodcraft or sailorcraft or whatever it is, isn't that neat? (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes on. For several years, Cooper was daily in the society of artillery, and he ought to have noticed that when a cannonball strikes the ground, it either buries itself or skips a hundred feet or so, skips again a hundred feet or so, and so on, till it finally gets tired and rolls. Now, in one place in the novel, he loses some females, as he always calls women, in the edge of a wood near a plain, at night, in a fog, on purpose, to give Natty Bumpo a chance to show off the delicate art of the forest before the reader. (laughs) These mislaid people are hunting for a fort. They hear a cannon blast. And a cannonball presently comes rolling into the woods and stops at their feet. To the females, this suggests nothing. But the case is very different with the admirable Bumpo. I wish I may never know peace again if he doesn't strike out promptly and follow the track of that cannonball across the plain through the dense fog and find the fort. Isn't that a (laughs) daisy? If Cooper had any real knowledge of nature's ways of doing things, he had a most delicate art in concealing the fact. <laughs> For instance, in one, one of his acute Indian experts, Chingachgook, pronounced Chicago, I think, <laughs> has lost the trail of a person he is tracking through the forest. Apparently, that trail is hopelessly lost. Neither you nor I could ever have guessed out the way to find it. But it was very different with Chicago. Chicago was not stumped for long. He turned a running stream out of its course, and there, in the slush in its old bed, were that person's moccasin tracks. (laughs) 
The current did not wash them away, as it would have done in all other like cases. Nope. Even the eternal laws of nature have to vacate when Cooper wants to put up a delicate job of woodcraft on the reader. <laughs> he goes on pages and pages, and every line is worth reading, to, to basically pillory Cooper for committing crimes against the kinds of things that we've been talking about, against uh, accurate depiction of facts, against clarity and precision of language, against telling it like it appears to the senses. And he finally sums up this way. A work of art, speaking of the Deerslayer, a work of art, it has no invention, it has no order, system, sequence, or result. It has no lifelikeness, no thrill, no stir, no seeming of reality. Its characters are confusedly drawn, and by their acts and words they prove that they are not the sort of people the author claims that they are. Its humor is pathetic, its pathos is funny. Its conversations are, oh, indescribable. Its love scenes odious. Its English a crime against the language. Counting these out, what is left is art. I think we must all admit that. (laughs) Ah, Twain. That is brutal. I recommend highly this essay, but not just for the fun of it, but also to give a good idea of what the realists think about what's important in literature and what their novels consistently demonstrate. This is the list, by the way, where he tells writers to eschew surplusage. Did you know that it came from this? <laughs> That's funny. This essay? Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. I, I tell my writing students all the time, that, as Mark Twain would tell them, to eschew surplusage. And he certainly accuses Cooper of breaking that rule over and over again. Do we have a, a consensus among us, whether we uh, enjoy realistic fiction, maybe better than what came before or would come after? What do you guys think about that? I'd like to teach the literary realists and the modernists that came after them um, because it's so easy to see the intellectual philosophy that drove their art. Um, And if you're interested in intellectual history, as I am, that's a real treat to get to see see those ideas kind of played out in fiction this way. Um, In terms of reading, I much prefer the English realist, um, Charles Dickens. He's much more warm, um, Mm. generally speaking in his view of humanity. And I think it's, I think it must be because although he was dealing with the same kind of social issues, he, he retained a faith. He retained a faith of sorts. He didn't deny the existence of a transcendent being. And while he definitely made pot shots at the, um, at the institutional church, he he seemed to be guided by a deeper faith. I think that's probably due, and you guys chip in on this, but I think that is really, um, I would chalk that up to the fact that he did a lot of his work before the effects of Darwin's revolution had really be, become to be felt. And, and I think Twain and those that followed him were probably more strongly influenced by Darwin's world. Mm-hmm. You guys think, what do you think of that? I agree. I agree too. Um, one of the things I was thinking about just now in terms of the difference inter- reading experience wise between the two genres um, is that they make different use of symbolism in, in a, in a work of romantic fiction. And I'll just use, I'll just use the Scarlet Letter as my example. Um, 
the symbols are rich and beautiful and deep and they span the entire novel and they almost always have to do with something spiritual. It's a physical, it's a physical reality or an object like the scarlet letter on Hester's breast representing a spiritual reality that the author is trying to write about. And this might be a little bit too much of a pat comparison, but I think it'll serve to elucidate a difference between the, the genres in Let's move to Stephen Crane in the Red Badge of Courage. Mm -hmm. There we have physical, or, or we have um, rather outdated, quote unquote, spiritual ideas symbolizing a shift towards a physical reality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you get the, and, the sun hanging like a communion wafer. Yeah. Right. Right, exactly, and those kinds of those kinds of symbols aren't necessarily a meditation on spiritual realities, no. but are instead intended to to burst your bubble, to right. back the reader away from spiritual reality, and to poke a hole in the mere idea that spiritual reality exists. Yeah, and to um, depict reality, and it, and I nature. Want to be clear, I want to be really clear that it's not a difference in artistry. I don't think um, the right. prose surrounding those symbols and the way that they're worked into the plot equally beautiful as stylists we have just as big a pile in one camp as the other agreed but i think that the aim of symbolism particularly that particular device is very differently used in realism mm. yeah to poke holes in the idea of a nature that's inhabited with some sort of a kindly spirit or a spirit that is um a kindly benevolent spirit towards man mm -hmm. right um right. all mm -hmm. of a sudden nature is nothing more than this kind of one dimensional material impersonal reality here's here's what though and this this is maybe a um so i think something emily would probably agree with and a point in the realist favor nobody better across the centuries in my opinion and uh and i think i actually i, I mean to say this very strongly nobody better at asking a pointed question and not delivering you an answer which is i think one of the main roles of art broadly speaking to ask a pointed question and not offer an answer Emily, what, what say you? A tendency to be a little pat, I think. And the realists, by by contrast, will sit there and face you with something difficult. I'm thinking of um, Jack London's The Sea Wolf. Everyone should go and read that book. It is it is fabulous and thought-provoking. But it, um, he posits a couple of philosophical questions that he just that his his main character never does get get around to an answer to. And um, I, I think that's a powerful that's a powerful function of art to leave the reader with a question. I think that I would have to say, though, that they're leading questions, and it's not that the author doesn't have an answer. In fact, a lot of times, the answers are implied in the action of the story and in the depiction of reality, right? Well, Ian, you, you mentioned ago, a minute ago that you think Emily would probably agree with you, and I just have to know. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking that I, I think that the realists did a good job of even if they don't even if they don't acknowledge a spirituality even if they're doing the exact opposite and trying to burst your bubble that it might have been a bubble that needed bursting anyway um to bring you to bring people all the way back down to the foundation asking the really raw questions and even if they're giving answers that we may not agree with to the extent that they are cuz i'm not entirely sure i agree that they're um always giving their answers straight out. Um, Didn't I say the opposite of that? Well, yeah, but your mom was saying that, that they'd imply it. And, I, and they oh, do yeah. in a lot of cases. But also I think that they were a lot better at just asking the questions and letting them hang. Um, and I think that's necessary. Yeah, me too. They weren't as didactic I, is what you're saying. 
Well, no, I guess what I'm saying is they're correcting a, a fault that needed correcting in right. American literature mm-hmm. yeah. and that it was necessary. Essentially the sentimentalism. Still, well, and yeah, and I think it had a positive effect and is continuing to, like, to today, at least we're asking the right questions, you know? That brings up a another, maybe an open-ended question that I want to ask, maybe to end this segment of Lit Period. Um, we talked when we were talking about romantics and transcendentalism in a previous um, episode. We asked the question: To what extent do the novels from that and the the literature from that period? To what extent does that stuff affect what we're doing today in the 20th century? How we think about life and the kinds of uh, literary art and cinematic art that we're participating in? To what extent has it been affected by the Romantic movement? Let me ask the same question now about American realism. To what extent do you think we live in a world created by Mark Twain and Stephen Crane and Jack London and Upton Sinclair? I don't know if this is this is the direction that you want to take the conversation, but I immediately think of the cinema culture of today, mm-hmm. those movies that are really gritty and dark and realistic and a little postmodern in their endings. They refuse to give you a happy ending and they focus on violence and hardship I think that might be a direct result of this swing to the realist movement. Yeah, think about that movie that was out recently, Dunkirk, right? Mm -hmm. Um, From a very individual perspective, um, all the things that I read really commented on the fact that you never really got a uh, bird's eye view of what was going on or the, the true full history of the moment, right? No meta narrative. No, going no meta narrative going on at all. It's an individual's account, their own experience of this thing. Interesting. That, occurred. Mm-hmm. that seems to be working in the wake of this kind of tradition. In the tradition of realism. Yes. I think, I think, I think that's right. But since you brought up Dunkirk, um, one idea that sticks out to me is that, um, and this sort of goes along with what Emily was saying a second ago, that particular perspective, an individualist narrative, where we're seeing through a particular character's eyes about these scenes, allows the author of works like this to communicate some intangible ideas in a really moving way. For example, the character that Kenneth Branagh plays in that movie, whose responsibility it is to make some big decisions, right, about who's leaving the beach and when they're leaving the beach and um he doesn't have any more of a bird's eye view than we do. And his actions are the direct result of pure and simple faith, mm-hmm. not necessarily in God, but just faith, faith by itself, mm-hmm. faith in his fellow man, faith in the British to do something about all of this faith that it's somehow going to turn out. Okay. And it comes down to a strength of character on his part. And that is a, that, that thematic communication I think would be impossible if we were given a meta narrative of some kind. Um, we're we're empowered to step well, into the muck alongside this guy and feel exactly the way he's feeling, which is a, I think that's a that's a strength of the realist. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, yeah, even more positively and like literarily, I don't think it would be possible to have the faith of a Marilyn Robinson without first the cynicism of a Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. I don't think she would have been possible in our tradition without without some of these realists who brought the story down to the nitty gritty level and yeah I had cynicism and doubted a, a benevolent deity in the face of tragedy yeah. and, and mis- mistreatment of others but but then you get a Marilyn Robinson who can look at that and see the nitty gritty and mm-hmm. see just as Ethan was saying that 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 individual perspective on the world requires faith I think that it led to positive things as well as postmodern cinema or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I, I think too of Wendell Berry, um, his, his great novel, Jaber Crow, 
which is a theodicy of sorts and contemplates all of that um, darkness that the realists were, were maybe the first to really poke a finger at. And he, he basically deals with that in that particular story in a beautiful way. Mm. And that wouldn't have been possible without the work of the, of the realists. Wow, you guys. I feel way smarter than I was 45 minutes ago. That's a great conversation. American realism. Thank you for your contributions, Center for Lit crew. Thank you for tuning in, Center for Lit listeners. We appreciate your attendance today. And we're going to go ahead and adjourn this episode and meet again at a future date for another literary conversation. Meanwhile, you can check out other episodes of Bibliophiles on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also swing by the website, B-Times, and check out what we're doing at centerforlit.com. We have enjoyed this little journey through the periods of Western literature with you, and we look forward to another one. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.